I constantly straddle two disparate worlds. One is in Boston, where I work for one of the country's best healthcare systems and serve as a professor at Harvard Medical School. The other is in northern New Mexico, where I'm a member of the Taos Pueblo tribe. The Boston area was an early hotbed of the pandemic in the United States. In March of 2020, Chelsea, Massachusetts, a predominantly Latino city that borders Boston to the north, had one of the highest COVID-19 rates in the country. These soaring rates soon hit surrounding areas, also with largely Black and Latino populations. 2,000 miles away and a world apart from Chelsea, Navajo Nation, which sits just on the other side of the Carson National Forest from the Taos Pueblo tribe I know so well, underwent similar pandemic-driven devastation. During the first three months of the pandemic, American Indians accounted for 58% of COVID-19-related deaths in New Mexico, despite making up just 11% of its population. While these two communities could not be more different in population, culture, or geography, the COVID-19 pandemic has linked them in an unfortunate but all-too-common way. Both are beset by racism and racial disparities in healthcare. That was Dr. Tom Sequist reading from his first opinion essay, The Parallel Plights of Two Communities 2,000 Miles Apart, Racked by the Pandemic. Tom is a physician, the chief medical officer of Mass General Brigham in Boston, medical director of the outreach program with the Indian Health Service at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and a professor of medicine and healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School. I'll bring you our conversation afterward about color code, a new podcast from STAT. The current experiences of, of, of Black people when it comes to their interactions with the medical community or doctors is also an issue. Sometimes they might go to see a doctor and feel like they're not being listened to, or they're not heard. And, and how does that play into this overall problem of, of, of mistrust in the Black community of the medical establishment? I have worked in major white hospital institutions and I have been dismayed by the way in which my colleagues have treated black patients and I have uh, endeavored to, to call that behavior out and to try to rectify it. Hey there, my name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter here at STAT and I'm excited to tell you about our new podcast that I'm hosting this spring. It's called Color Code. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over, and someone is like, oh no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality, and I'm like, actually it is. In a hospital, a code indicates some sort of crisis. And for so long, racism has created a crisis in American medicine. Color Code will take a hard look at the hidden and not-so-hidden forces behind the stark inequities faced by black clinicians and patients. We'll journey from a 1910 report that closed many black medical schools and explore modern-day algorithms that reinforce bias. You'll hear from clinicians, researchers, and everyday folk who are just trying to give and get good care. I mean, I have a mistrust of the medical establishment and I'm a researcher, like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of how I've seen providers treat my family members. Color Code is coming out Monday, March 21st. The first of eight episodes is all about medical mistrust within black communities. We'll release episodes every other week. We'll also have photos and additional reading up on our website, so be sure to keep a lookout for that. 
Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Together, let's raise the alarm. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's so great to talk with you today, Tom. Thank you. As you said in the opening, you're a member of the Taos Pueblo tribe. Is that where you grew up? No, I actually grew up outside of uh, New York City. My mother was raised in the traditional village in, in Taos, and we uh, spent a lot of time there growing up. What's it like? I mean, when you have a quiet moment and you close your eyes and think about it, what do you what do you see? So this is a, a, a traditional Pueblo village, so adobe structures sort of stacked on top of each other. Taos happens to be at the base of a large mountain range uh, with a, a stream running through. It's very beautiful, idyllic setting. It's in the northern New Mexico, high elevation, cold climate, lots of snow. Um, and, you know, and I often think about this. It, it is a, a um, you know, on the other side of the mountain is actually a pretty famous uh, ski resort, um, which is a very kind of um, different environment with, uh, you know, uh, people who have a lot more uh, means sort of living and vacationing. And, and, and it's one of these scenarios in the U.S. that you can see where on the other side of the mountain, there is pretty clear poverty uh, and, you know, a very different uh, experience with health. Have you taken on a liking for Southwest cuisine? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Although um, not so much in Boston. I live in Boston now. Uh, um, and, you know, not, not so much of that around here compared to there. Yeah. I can't imagine somebody preferring Northeast cuisine, but but you never know. It takes all types. So what were you doing in December 2020? No, it, uh, I have my, my numbers wrong. It would be December 2019 before the world changed. Well, I think professionally what I was doing was getting ready to take on a new role at Mass General Brigham. So I had uh, rec recently been appointed the new uh, chief patient experience and equity officer for our system. So overseeing uh, quality and safety, and then and with a renewed focus, though, on patient experience and equity for our system. So that had, had I think, right around that time, December of 2019, maybe, maybe early January 2020, had just been announced in our system. And so three months later, what was your connection with Chelsea Mass when COVID-19 began to ravage the people of that city? Well, Chelsea is a community that we serve uh, through many of our hospitals and, and, and uh, clinics. And, so, and so, so had already had a tight relationship between our system and that community. Um, when, when the pandemic started, you might remember it started very early in the Boston area because of a, a conference that had uh, occurred here. And so right. one of the earlier, very early communities that was hit hard in the nation was actually Chelsea, Massachusetts. I, because of my role in the system, uh, and when our system and the Mass General Brigham system, when our system uh, responded and had what's called an incident command response, I was put in charge of being the medical advisor for that response, as well as the operations um, uh, section chief for that response. So, you know, uh, working with communities like Chelsea became my job, my full time job in the, co in the uh, leading the COVID pandemic response. You wrote that, quote, for all its healthcare prowess, Boston, like the rest of the world, 
was not prepared for a pandemic. That must have been confusing times. Well, it came on, as you might remember, very quickly. You know, you, you prepare, we, and, and we do prepare for a variety of emergency scenarios. We had just never seen anything of this magnitude, you know, and that came on so quickly. We, you know, from everything from how do we work together in unison across 12 hospitals, you know, six or 7,000 doctors, hundreds of clinics, um, how do we march in unison towards one goal um, right away? How do we make sure that we have the correct supply chains in place? How do we make sure that we have all the right medications in place? It was uh, all of this thrust on us over the course of a couple of days. And it was hard. It was challenging. And it was also against the mindset. I, I remember in, you know, it was almost Friday the 13th. That was mid-March when uh, STAT was going to take a practice day to work at home. And then we never went back after that. And people sort of at the time were thinking, this is only going to be a couple of weeks. And that hasn't turned out. Well, I remember the day. So shortly after the pandemic started, we made a decision to uh, have everyone work from home unless you were an essential worker in the hospital, you know, on the front lines of patient care. But we are an organization of, of over 80,000 employees. So there were good tens of thousands of employees who were working from home. We have a, a headquarters building in Somerville, Massachusetts, which would house on a given on any given day used to house several thousand people at a time, mostly administrative functions. Um, and I remember when we sent everyone home and we had said, just like you're referring to, we had said, um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks, uh, but, <laughs> but it's safer to work home from home for a couple of weeks. And I probably didn't return to, because I worked in the hospital throughout the pandemic, but I, but I probably didn't return to that uh, corporate uh, headquarter building for, for many months. And it was a little eerie to go back into that building and see all the desks of people who had clearly departed thinking they were coming back in a couple of weeks. You can still see all the, the calendars were still set to March 6th or March 7th, whatever the day was. I forget the exact day that everyone had gone home. It was like a, it was like a giant time capsule uh, of that day when we sent everyone home. Uh, I, re I recall seeing the same thing at STAT when I went back in. Time capsule is the great word for it. When did you realize that something similar was happening in Taos Pueblo and the Navajo Nation? So, you know, the recognition that the pandemic was really impacting not only uh, Navajo Nation and other, other tribal communities, um, that recognition came very late, I think. Now, now I, I, I mean, it was soon in the, in the course of the pandemic, you know, like a month into it. But I think I highlight that it came late because we don't have good data monitoring and surveillance programs for the health of American Indians. Um, and so you, you might um, think about, and, and maybe moving forward, when you see charts of the health of Americans and when we look at it by race or ethnicity, you will often see categories you know, like white and, and black and Asian, and then you'll see other. And in buried in that other category is the American Indian population almost always. Um, and, and, you know, we, we don't capture that data well, we don't report on it well. And so it, I think it took too long for us to recognize what a, what a trauma that this pandemic was actually inflicting among these communities. Were, uh, were American Indian communities hit worse than Chelsea or just differently? I think about the same. The Navajo Nation, similar to how Chelsea was a standout in many communities, not in a great way in, in terms of how it was impacted. Uh, by this pandemic, the Navajo Nation similarly, in terms of, uh, was similarly impacted uh, as a, almost a standout among American Indian communities. 
Um, in terms of the the rates of death, um, uh, it, the, the rates were actually quite similar between the Navajo Nation and, and Chelsea. Very different environments, right? But the, the impact was actually remarkably, stunningly similar. So we'll talk about your work with the Indian Health Service in a second, but but given that perspective, did you have a bad feeling about this when you first heard it was coming, the pandemic? To be honest, I don't think that I did in the sense of, well, when the pandemic was first starting, I didn't, and I don't think anyone had a sense of, uh, well, I shouldn't say anyone. I wasn't perceived, I wasn't perceiving uh, uh, the extent of which uh, the impact that this was going to have. And, you know, some of these tribal communities seemed so distant to me that how would, how would this pandemic impact them so, so dramatically so early on? It was very clear to me how Chelsea got impacted so early on, right? It started in Boston, right? The spread from, from the original uh, conference that, um, uh, in the Boston area. Probably, I don't think I had this explicit thought, but in my mind, I was probably thinking, well, these are remote communities, which has provided a challenge for health delivering healthcare for so many decades. But in this setting, maybe that's a blessing, right? Because you are removed from the from the pandemic, but that turned out obviously not to be the case. Oh, I, I wouldn't have thought of that, but, but it, it seems like there was nowhere you could go almost as the pandemic kept moving on. And, but then the question is once the pandemic gets a foothold in a community, how resilient is that community to the, to the spread of this, of this virus? And that gets to the, that gets to where Chelsea and the Navajo Nation are quite similar. So what are some of the things they share in that regard? Well, I think the overall thing that they share is poverty and poverty that has been the result of, you know, structural racism for, for many, many years, um, which has been enacted through policies, right, over, over the years uh, in, in our country. And I think that, you know, when you break down, then what does poverty cause or lead to? Well, it leads to conditions that um, facilitated the spread of the virus, whether it's overcrowding in housing, um, the inability to socially distance, whether it's in your house or or whether it's in your place of employment because you are required to be a frontline worker and you have to take the bus uh, to work and the bus is a, uh, a challenging place to, to socially distance. Um, mm. You know, if you live on the Navajo Nation and you don't have access to indoor plumbing and you have to go to more public areas to get your water. Um, that's an exposure that you wouldn't have to have if you lived in a, in a larger home right in Boston where you, you very likely have, almost assuredly have indoor plumbing. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, these, these examples go on and on, I think. Sorry, my dog is barking. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> we've, heard, we've heard worse. Hold, hold on, on one second. Hold on. <laughs> sure. Okay, sorry. That's okay. So we were, I'd like to know more about the outreach program with the Indian Health Service, which the website says is a way for Mass General Brigham physicians to, quote, support the Indian Health Service community. I don't think a lot of people who don't depend on the Indian Health Service know much about it. Can you just, it's its own entity, isn't it? Yeah, so the Indian Health Service is a a, um, program within the public health service, uh, within the federal government. Uh, it was established, you know, and uh, I believe in the 1950s as a result of um, some Supreme Court and other legal decision. And it, and it is sort of established in, in uh, the, it's, its establishment uh, has roots in treaty uh, negotiations between 
independent sovereign nations, uh, Indian nations and the U.S. government um, going back into the sort of 19th and then into the 20th century. Um, and in those treaties is, is sort of these uh, um, ingrained these um, uh, negotiations around the provision of health. And so that so the Indian Health Service right now really separates into two functions, a, a federal function and a tribal, a tribally run function. But but ultimately, just to keep it more brief is, you know, it is a network of hospitals, you know, fi- about 50 hospitals, clinics, about maybe several hundred clinics um, uh, that are located on or near original tribal tribal communities. It doesn't sound like it's well funded or funded enough. I, I guess I would say more more to put it more pointedly, it is definitely underfunded. So so analyses of the funding sort of per per patient or per member uh, per year uh, would suggest that it's it's probably funded at about fifty percent of what it would really need to to provide um, the best health care for these populations. We talk a lot about mistrust in marginalized communities regarding healthcare. Our new podcast, Color Code, that I mentioned at the top, talks about this in the Black community. Has mistrust evolved in the Native American communities as well regarding the Indian Health Service? Well, I mean, I, I think American Indians, like, like many other groups who have um, experienced racism in this country, do have a mistrust of um, many aspects of of um, you know our our culture and our in our country, I, I actually think the Indian Health Service itself, itself um, in many ways provides a good model for how you can combine public health delivery with with clinical care delivery, and have had and and it has had many successes over the years. Um, I think many of the people who work in the Indian Health Service are doing it out of a mission based orientation. To, to try to improve the health status of, of American Indians. I think the challenge is it is extraordinarily underfunded and you are, you're swimming upstream because many of the challenges that are creating the four to five year life expectancy gap between American Indians and the rest of the population, those challenges are actually, um, they're larger societal challenges. They're not always about you know, like, are you getting the right medication uh, for your disease? But they are about things like, what are the levels of poverty and education and access to basic necessities, infrastructure challenges and housing? Um, these are hard challenges for a delivery system like the Indian Health Service to, to overcome. These hospitals and, and health systems must also have trouble getting and recruiting doctors. I, my brother-in-law, who was a family physician at the time and um, was working for the public health system, um, public health service, spent a couple years in Shiprock. Um, in one of the, um, I think in one of the Indian Health Service uh, health communities, but those people only stay for a couple of years. So continuity of care must be difficult. Absolutely. And, and I think um, one of the ways that we need to think about solving for that kind of issue is that we need to make sure that we are growing and training health professionals from within these communities, hmm. because those are the people who are more likely to go and live there uh, and, and serve that community. That's a tall order. Well, it is, you know, and if you look at physicians as a group overall, whether we're looking at American Indians or let's say uh, black physicians, black students as well, we have not made progress in that space over the past 30 years. Is, was that, is that one of the goals of the, um, the program that started at, at Brigham and Women's and is now a Mass General Brigham program? The volunteer program with the Navajo Nation? Yep. No, but we have a separate program called the Four Directions Summer Research Program at, at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which actually 
does have that goal, which is we recruit young uh, Native American college students, um, bring them to Harvard, um, engage them in research, provide mentoring and guidance on how to get into graduate school, including medical school, public health school, and other, um, with the full intent of developing a workforce to improve the health of American Indians. Interesting. What are some of the other things the program does? Well, I, I think it sort of um, breaks down into a couple of core areas. They probably spend about 80% of their time conducting research, whether it be clinical research, public health research, bench research. Um, the, the other 20% is a mix of shadowing opportunities, learning what it's like uh, in different careers to be an educator to, and to be a, a physician, to be a pharmacist. Um, and, then, and then also another set of activities we would call skill building, which is um, teaching them how do you write how do you put together your resume? How do you apply to graduate school? Understanding the finance, the finances and financial aid associated with medical school or, or PhD programs so that they leave with not only an, an experience in research, which will help them in their career moving forward, but also a core skill set of, um, of, of applying to, to graduate school. And then finally, which I think is probably one of the most important things, they leave with more social capital. They leave with a social network of mentors and, and supporters who can help them as they move along. When you were in medical school or residency or working in hospitals, were you sometimes the only or one of the few American Indians? Well, I think if you're outside of New Mexico, you're in the Boston area, I'm probably one of the only American Indians in, in any given audience, whether I'm at a restaurant or whether I'm working you know, in a hospital. Has it ever presented pro uh, problems or challenges? If I were to sort of think about it from a, a student perspective, it's been a while since I've been a student, but one of the biggest challenges is the feeling of isolation, that you just feel alone. Um, and it's very hard to find community uh, in that setting. So if, if a typical medical school may have one or two native students per class, it's just very hard to find community in that setting. Hmm. And community is important. Yes. Now, in your essay, you wrote that the easiest and fastest response to a crisis is always built for the majority. How so? Well, I think I think most things in, in society are built for the majority. But I would say specifically during a time of crisis, um, we rely on the infrastructures that have already been built when you're trying to move fast. Those infrastructures that have already been built have been built to... to um, meet the needs, meet the needs of the, of the majority and, and those who are in more positions of privilege. So when you are responding to a crisis that is actually not um, affecting the majority as much as it is, you know, communities like Chelsea, you have to find yourself building new infrastructures and very quickly uh, to meet those challenges. So your grounding in Chelsea and Taos Pueblo and Navajo Nation they took you in a different direction than building for the majority. How does an organization take an equity first approach to fighting something like COVID-19? You have to run every, and, um, I believe pretty strongly in this, you have to run every decision through an equity lens. So every time you are making an important decision, you have to ask yourself, how will this impact patients who don't speak English? How will this impact patients who don't have a car? How will this impact patients who don't have health insurance? And once you start to do that, once you really build in systematically that you're going to ask yourself those questions with every decision, you will find yourself making different decisions. Um, you know, you will find yourself directing resources in, in different ways. 
So like when you were trying to um, give vaccines, you needed to make sure that people didn't have to drive or take time off from work to get vaccinated, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So so questions like that will will choose you will will force you, I'm sorry, to make choices like where do I stand up a temporary vaccine clinic? Um, Do I use my existing clinic buildings? Well, no, not if they're not located in the community that, you know, um, needs more access to vaccines. You you will make decisions like, do I send out the invitations for vaccines in English? Well, maybe we should rethink that um, and, and think about whether or not we need to figure out how to do this in a multilingual way, if in particular the disease you're targeting is disproportionately affecting people who don't speak English. I can see getting pushback on that. Did that happen? The main pushback that you're going to find in this space is speed. So the pandemic was overwhelming all of us, right? And I will go back to what I think what you said at the beginning, the faster solution is always going to benefit the majority in this space, right? And so we have to be able to say, okay, well, I'm going to put a stop here because I on this decision because of the equity lens that I've applied. What I found it made us to do in our, it forced us to do in our system is not slow us down, but very rapidly figure out the solutions that are going to meet the needs of everyone. I, I think, you know, it's what is the what is the phrase? It's um, necessity is the mother of invention, right? It forced us to rethink and develop equity first strategies really quickly because we only had 24 hours, right, to, to, make, to make sure we started getting these vaccines, let's say, into patients. So I wonder if that phrase could be modified to equity is the mother of invention. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much. It's been it's been a pleasure. It sounds like you don't have enough to keep you busy. What's next? Oh, I, I think there's a we're still working on the COVID pandemic, right? There's still lots of work to do there. But I think pushing forward and across, across Mass General Brigham, making sure, sure that we are delivering the highest quality, best experience for our patients. Tom, good luck with all that. Be well. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Thank you.